one. If you turn to the book of Joel, it's uh, one of the minor prophets. It's probably one of the cleaner pages in the back of the Old Testament. Not many people read through this. If they do, they usually do quickly and scratch their head a little bit. Um, but we're going to try, by God's Spirit, to understand a little bit more. And so we're going to continue what last week uh, we introduced the day of the Lord. At least Joel did. And we talked a little bit about what that day was. And this morning we continue to discuss what that is. But uh, before we dare try anything, uh, let's ask God's Spirit to teach us this morning. Lord, uh, even as we were singing, um, your Spirit just reminded me it's your voice I need to hear. We turn on the TV and there are a lot of voices got out there. Shouting, come this way or go that way. But it's your voice we want to hear. It's your voice, God, we desperately need to hear. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. You living water, would you speak? Your word is life. Breathe into us life through your word this morning, God. That we'd be changed. That we'd have hope for our circumstances and our situation. We thank you ahead of time, God, for what you're going to say to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was reading through Joel, uh, just reminded again of how much more of God there is than on Sunday morning sometimes. We come and we sing, <clears throat> and our mind is that, you, God, you're up there, and, and you're worthy of praise, and we acknowledge that. Um, but we don't begin to understand how mind-boggling he is and how much he blows away the borders and boxes we put him in. And sometimes we just need a fresh revelation. I got one uh, last week, a revelation. And um, there's, a, there's a person here in our church, I don't know if she's here this morning, but you see her and you see her smile and, and, uh, and she's a wonderful mom and you observe she's a, a wonderful wife. And, uh, and I wouldn't mention her name and embarrass her, but Anna Ahmet is her name. And, uh, and there was something new about Anna I didn't know. And last week we began softball. And we're having batting practice, and she drills one way over my head. And I'm like, well, I must be up kind of close. So I back up, and she just hits a missile over my head again. And I'm like, who is this girl? Then the game starts, and there's a fly ball between Tim and I, and we collide. The ball hits. Next fly ball, out by her, running smooth as silk, catches that thing, throws it in. I'm like, who is this? This is the same lady who on Sunday morning in the dress, and she gets out on the softball field, and good night. And uh, so much more uh, than we see on Sunday morning. And we read Joel, and we realize there's so much more to God. The book of Joel, I'm convinced, is really a trumpet call. It's a call, that's a call to action to you and I. To, to Israel, it's a call. It's a national call to turn back to God. To the church, it's a global call to turn back to God. To all mankind, it's a personal call. A personal call to repent. To get right with the Lord before it's too late. Before judgment comes. And as we read through these verses... I want to start to see a little bit about this deliverance that God offers His people. You see, when the people do repent, God responds by restoring. 
materially, spiritually, and nationally. We read about it here. Matter of fact, in verse 27 of chapter 2, he talks about something. He says, Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. You see, God offers deliverance from shame. He restores hearts that are weighed down by guilt and shame. And last week we talked about the bad news, in a sense, that scriptures are clear that a terrible time of judgment and devastation is coming. Worse than any other time in human history. It's the day of the Lord. But there's good news from Joel 2, 18-32. Because the scriptures are also clear that when individuals repent and return to the Lord, and by God's grace when the nation of Israel repents and turns back to God, then He will restore. Now, follow along in chapter 2, starting at verse 18. I want you to notice all that God does. The restoration and the work and the grace are all over these verses. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. We realize God's heart. He's zealous for His people. He's zealous for His land. He will have pity on His people. It's the idea of mercy. God looks down in a a heart of understanding and mercy. He covers His people. Verse 19, The Lord will answer and say to His people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine, and oil. So God's going to send His people something new. He's going, to, he's going to give an abundance. That's the heart of God. He's an abundant God. For God so loved the world, He gave. And when God gives, it's abundance. Verse 20, we read more. But I will remove the northern army far from you. God will defeat the enemies of Israel, notably the attacks from the north. And there's some disagreement necessarily what that is. Verse 21. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Now notice as we go through these verses, all that God is doing, all that He's promising His people. Now once again, we run into this, and we're going to run into it again, this double reference where the prophet's talking about a near view, but also a far view. And you can certainly take these things and think in terms of a thousand-year reign of Christ, a millennial kingdom, where righteousness will reign and and God will show great abundance towards His people. And so we have this double reference, again, of near view and far view. And we're going to see this all over the rest of this book. Verse 22. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green. For the tree has borne its fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. Now remember last week we talked about this locust that came upon the land. Devastated it. Laid it out bare. No green, no fruit. Matter of fact, the drunkards were crying because there was no vineyard. Joel told us that. And now we read about what he's going to do now. He's going to make things green. It's going to be plush. There's going to be abundance. The tree and vine will yield its fruit again in full. But he's not done. Rejoice, O sons, verse 23 of Zion. Be glad in the Lord your God. Note, you're going to find that theme. I don't, you might want to underline rejoice and be glad. This whole tone of this letter has changed dramatically. For he has given you early rain for your vindication. And he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. So God's going to bring rain for the land so it will flourish. But he's not done. Verse 26. You shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. 
Or is God's going to have a serious potluck coming? <laughs> I mean, I love potlucks, don't you? Because you can just gorge yourself. And nobody knows. Because everyone's gorging themselves. It's like a, a, a healthy, go- holy gorge. How's that? And, uh, and it's okay because there's plenty. And these people are going to have serious plenty. Because God's in a God of abundance. And He restores the land. He restores its fruitfulness. And restores it to its uh, vitality. As the one true God, He can do that. He gives plenty to eat. He removes His people's shame. They will know that He is in the midst of His people. Set apart as the only true God. Verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. You, your children might look at you as old. I'll let you decide which category you fit in. I'm going with the young. Uh, young men will see visions. But God's going to pour out His Spirit on all mankind. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. All due to the work of the Spirit in their life. In other words, God's going to do a new work. A restoring work. A work that can't be explained only other than God did it. That's what God's going to do. And God speaks hope. These young men will see visions and these men and women of all classes and stations will be able to receive the Spirit. And we read on in verse 29, "Even Even the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, no matter what station. He says, I will display wonders in the sky and the earth. He's going to show off. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. Verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Our God's a God of hope, both for the Jew and the Gentile. I thought about, as I read this a little bit, with Father's Day coming, and, and uh, dads, you probably, uh, maybe your mind goes to, my, dad, my mind thought of my dad this week, and and uh, just kind of the things he instilled in me, and uh, began to think about this text in light of my fatherhood, and my, my daddying of my kids. And, and I'm convinced, dads, if there's some lesson out of here for all of us, is be a purveyor of hope. Your children and your family desperately need you in a dark world to be one that says there's hope. And yeah, you may have made mistakes. Your kids might be in their 30s, and they may have truly bottomed out. But they need you to speak into their life and say there's hope. As long as there's a God, there's hope. Be a purveyor of hope, just like Joel is. Good model for us. Because he speaks from the Father heart of God who gives all of us hope. And there's a great lesson, Dad, for us, and we could go on and on about that. Verse 28, you might not have known, but in verse 28, this passage is quoted by Peter in the day of Pentecost. On a sermon, 40 days after Christ ascended into heaven, his disciples gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, and the book of Acts tells us, there they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, while there's many thoughts on the various interpretation of this um, particular passage, Joel 2 clearly is an illustration of the law of double reference again. And we kind of, again, we see this all through this book. Peter in Acts 2 uses this passage from Joel 2 as proof that the advent of the Spirit, which they were experiencing at Pentecost, was a fulfillment of the prophecy anticipated in Joel. No ifs, ands, or buts, it's clear. Pentecost was fulfilling this prophecy. But there's also 
this double reference, this far view, it refers to events which will take place in the closer we get to the day of the Lord. We're going to see the Spirit moving more powerfully, publicly, personally, than ever in human history. Thus, Pentecost is just the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And not only is there going to be an outpouring of God's Spirit, look at verse 30 and 31, it's surrounded by these miraculous signs. There's going to be some incredible things that happen before this great and awesome day of the Lord that it comes. God's going to work in such a way that He will shake people all over the world. We're going to talk about Haggai, another prophet, and that speaks to this whole idea of God shaking things up. And he's a God who's a shaker for sure. In verse 32a, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Yes, Jews are God's chosen people, but according to Scripture, it's not enough that the Lord chose the Jews. The Jews need to choose Jesus. And yes, God has a heart for the Gentile. And the Lord chose to love them. But it's not enough that the Lord loves the Gentiles. Gentiles must also love the Lord. Because all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so God is at work here of restoring and calling people to Himself. They'll be delivered, verse 32 says. For on Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. There's that sense of hope again, of deliverance, of escape. As we get to chapter 3, we read some, a little different focus, but yet the same thing, because the day of the Lord is described now. It's described in some unique ways. In verse 1, we said, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, you might want to look there and you say, in those days and at that time, and you would probably ask like me, in what days and at what time is this referring to? Well, we know that the fortune of uh, Judah and Jerusalem hasn't yet happened, so this is a future day. Probably the dawn of the millennial kingdom, in which Revelation talks about. A time when God is going to completely and fully and graciously restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. We read a little bit more actually about what that kind is going to look like. Verse 2, I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Then I will enter into judgment with them there. And on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land, they have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head." Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory. You see, there's a charge God levels against these heathen nations. There's some things they've done, and he's going to gather all the nations together, not just a few, not some, all nations are going to be before him. And here's the charge, here's what they've done that he's going to levy against them. First of all, six reasons they're going to judge the nations. One is for scattering Israel and Jewish people among the nations. They've scattered his people. God says, I'm going to judge you for that. These are my people, not yours. And you've scattered them. A second thing we read in verse 2, a reason he's going to judge them, 
I will enter into judgment there on behalf of my people, my Israel, whom they scattered among the nations, and they divided up my land. Now, some of the atrocities various nations have committed against Israel and Jewish people over the centuries have already happened, for sure. Yet some will be committed against Israel during the time of Jacob's sorrow, which is the second part of the tribulation we read about. But I want you to notice that some of this is already taking place. A good example will be a, was a couple years ago, President Obama gave a speech in which he kind of reiterated some of, of a lot of what other leaders are saying in the world. But MSNBC reported this and kind of talked about this speech. In his speech, he called for Israel to withdraw to the 1967 borders. And you say, what's the big deal about that? You see, he was demanding Israel give up sovereign amounts of territory within Judea, Samaria, and the Golan Heights in order to create this sovereign Palestinian state and make peace with Syria. But President Obama never it kind of went far beyond what any other leader said and wanted to divide up even more of Israel. And the Obama plan would force Israel to give it all up, to divide Jerusalem and to return to these indefensible borders. This might sound like a good idea, but according to Joel, don't mess with God's land. That's his land. And he's clear, this is my land. And so this might sound like a good idea, but this is a grave error. It would severely jeopardize, just on a tactical level, Israeli national security. It would do so in direct defiance, however, of the Holy Scriptures. It would draw judgment from the Lord Almighty on any of those countries who would seek to divide God's land. And so, as we look at this far view, understand these things are taking place. They're, they're laying out before us. There are countries and people trying to divide Israel. It's amazing, this little country with all this uh, evil around it and trying to defeat Israel, it's amazing it won't be moved. God just holds that country in His hand. And yeah, they got pressures and, and stuff from outside, but God says, this is my land. Don't mess with it, because you'll be judged if you do. And so there's a second charge. There's a third one we read about in verses 3-5. through five. Nations would be judged because they sold the Jewish people into slavery. We're about to read about how God reverses that. In verse 3, they engaged in sex trafficking. We see it in verse 3 again. Traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Another reason is they stole treasures from the Lord, probably, maybe, his temple, and from Israel. And we read also in verse 19 through 21, they were murdering Jews and shedding Jewish blood. And God says, for these reasons, you will be judged. Now, for those heathen nations, that's bad news. But for God's people, they're able to look and say, okay, there's a day it's going to be made right. And that's a good message for us. We look around our world and we saw the horrific events of these shootings in Charleston this week. It takes you back a little bit and you're like, what's going on in this world? We just long for a day it will be made right. And God says through Joel, that day's coming. Hold tight, it's coming. Because Joel's a book of hope. A book of restoration for you and I. In verse 7 through 12 of chapter 3, we get this challenge that takes place. God challenges the nations that have made war on his people. Get a load of these verses. Behold, I'm going to arouse them and from the place where you have sold them, return your recompense on your head. In other words, I'm going to reverse the crime. You took my people into slavery? Not anymore. You're going to be taken into slavery. 
And also I'll sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah. They will sell them to the Sabians, to a distant nation, for the Lord has spoken. When you ever read the Lord has spoken, that means God spoke and it's going to happen. He doesn't stutter. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. The Joel now kind of enters almost into a prayer. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Those are pretty heavy words. God saying, bring it. You want a war? You want to mess with me? Bring it. But you better gather all of them. And even then, you're going you're to accomplish nothing. I'm going to judge you. It's, a, it's an amazing context to me. Matter of fact, Psalm 2, I want to read the first four verses because you're like, how does God feel about this when people wage war on Him? Psalm 2 tells us maybe a surprising response you wouldn't expect from God. The psalmist writes, Why are the nations in uproar? Why the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. But He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's like He says, Seriously? You're going to come against me? He laughs. That's kind of surprising. The Lord scoffs at them. The idea of, are you serious about this? You're going to mess with me. That's what God's saying here in Joel. You've made a grave mistake because a crisis is coming. There will be multitudes in the valley of decision. As we read that verse, verse 13 through 15, put the sickle for the harvest is ripe. In other words, the wicked uh, particular people are going to be ripe for judgment. Come tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision for the day of Lord, the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now I've heard this verse is used in uh, evangelistic events, the idea being to portray a people who need to make a decision for Christ that they stand in this valley of decision. And I guess there's some justification for using it, but in this particular case, context, it's not people who are making the decision. God is. God's the decision maker here. And he's rendering judgment against the nations who dared to defy him and come against his people. Believers, or believe also speaks of the day of the Lord. Verse 16 through 17, I believe again we have this far view. The Lord roars from Zion, utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy, and strangers will pass through it no more. Speaks of this day of the Lord and the final judgment of the living nations on earth at the return of Christ, which we read in other passages. Might want to read Zechariah 14, 3 through 9, and write that down, and it'd be a great read. You'll kind of Zechariah builds upon this what Joel is. And as we end this chapter, God ends it with a a sense of comfort, of consolation. He says to his people, don't worry about the heathen nations. I'm going to take care of them. And although it might be scary, 
Although they might roar loud, I'm going to roar louder, louder. And my judgment is sure. But then he gets even more, brings more comfort to his people. Verse 18 through 21. It will come about in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. That the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord. Ezekiel kind of speaks to that in Ezekiel 47. And says a spring will come out from the, horse, the, the house of the Lord. And everyone who drinks of it, everyone who experiences that spring, there will be new life. God will restore his people from that spring. Egypt will become a waste. And Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Remember Edom? Remember we studied Obadiah? I'm going to write in that parentheses Obadiah because it talks about that judgment against Edom. And here we see Edom again being judged. Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah in whose land they have shed innocent blood. But Judah will be inhabited forever. And generation and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. In other words, I've moved into Zion for good. And no one's going to mess with you as my people anymore. Your future, he says to Israel, and he says to you and I, your future is in my hands. And that's the safest place it could be. And God would say that to you too. You might be going through dark times, difficult times. You might be going through very uncertain times. And God says, if you're in my hands, you're in the safest place you could be. No matter what. And that's what he's telling Israel and telling you and I. Our future is safe. He is preparing something that will blow our minds. He is preparing something, according to the end of Zion here, or the end of Joel, and he's speaking to Zion and to us. He says, I'm preparing something that eye has not seen, nor ear has not heard. That's even entered into the minds of people. That's what I'm doing. And God's preparing something marvelous. In the day the Lord is coming, make no mistake, and it'll be a terrible day for the wicked. But for God's people... He is a refuge. He is a hope. And the more prophetically aware we are aware of what God speaks in His Word, the more fulfilling our life. And the more prophetically we are aware, the more perseverance we have to get through this life. I'm convinced one of the main reasons God's given us prophecy not only is to see the mind of God and the greatness of God to put this all together, but also you and I would have hope. Matter of fact, Paul was saying, you know what, I press on and the reason he pressed on is because of something that awaited him in the future. Prophecy helps you and I press on. It helps us persevere. Because ultimately this text gives you and I great hope. And I want to end on two applications, two applications only, because they're enough to really help us today. God brings restoration to the repentant. If there's a message, an overarching message of Joel, this is it. The first half, he calls his people to repentant over and over and over. The second part, he says, to the repentant, come restoration. You might have walked away from God. Maybe you compromised God's standards. Maybe you're beat down by sin and circumstances. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Restoration begins on your knees. All the marriage counseling I've done, it's amazing when there's repentance, there's restoration. When there's pride, not so much. And that's what Joel's telling us. When there's repentance, God promises he'll restore. There's a great verse in this that he says, I will restore to you what the locusts have eaten. 
In other words, whatever the consequences in the past were, whatever had to happen because of your sin, if you come to me and repent, I'm going to do some restoration in your life. Read the prodigal son. Kind of hard, not hard to miss that message. God will work, he will restore, if you and I will come to him in repentance. Number two, God has an incredible future prepared for those who are his. Again, today could be difficult, it could be dark, you might be in pain. Today there's much hate around us, we've seen that. We've seen our world, we've seen our leaders, we've seen our government. But they won't have the last word. God will. And he has a future. We're told in Revelation, the old and weak will be restored. The lame will be restored. Gloom, there'll be restoration, it'll become joy. Sickness, they'll be restored. There'll be perfect health. That's what our future awaits. You see, God has a future. In the palm of his hand, you and I can sleep tonight with great confidence of what the future awaits for you and I. Revelation 21, 4 through 5. Behold, God says, I'm making all things new. I am. That means he's in the process of making all things new. You see, God has a restoring heart. You and I have a hope and we have a future. And we have assurance from Joel that if we will repent, he will bring restoration because God's heart is a restoring heart. And so it's right that you and I sing, Come, Lord Jesus. It's right that you and I sing about that day to the Lord because it brings you and I great hope. And so it's difficult, and I know it can be hard, but until that day comes, we sing. Until that day comes, we have hope because our King is coming. Let's pray. God, i got to confess, there's days I just want to weep. I weep for the hurt and the pain. The children who are hurt, deserted and abused. Of precious people at a Bible study who are murdered. Who sought to love. And the only response they got was hate. I weep. Sometimes, God, to be honest, I look at my own life and think, man, I wish things were a little smoother. But then I come across this passage. God, we find great hope that our circumstances and that the pain we see in this world will not have the last say. But you will. And why it might seem overwhelming, we know our King is coming. And you're coming for us. And you're coming to take us to a place that we're told you are preparing for us. And how great is a place that God's prepared it. Please, God, instill in your people this morning hope, confidence that a great future awaits us. Humility, God, that Although we may have run from you and we've tried to do life our own way, that if we'll but fall on our face and repent, you will bring restoration in our life. So please speak, God, to each heart, no matter where they're at, no matter where today finds them. 
Help them to hear your heart. Thank you for the hope we have, God. We worship you and we love you. We long for that day you come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.